Welcome to the Risky Business Podcast. Uh, this podcast is an in-depth look at country risk around the world. Uh, in part, it is um, based upon the TXF country risk ratings. You can go to those ratings if you click on at www.txfnews.com slash country risk. Topic of this episode is Russia and Eurasia. Uh, Russia had a very successful World Cup. Um, both on the pitch and off it, it might seem. But according to your country risk ratings, it has a rise of 44.88%, uh, making it giving it a, a risk rating of uh, 332.66. I can imagine there's some quite interesting things going on with Russia at the moment. What are you seeing? Um, well, the first thing to say is you're absolutely right. Um, Russia had a very successful World Cup um, and um, Russia had a very successful World Cup because of the way it presented itself in terms of its soft power. That is exactly Putin's strategy. Putin's strategy has been this um, implausible deniability um, approach to saying it's not us. Um, in international relations, it's not we're, we're, we're peacemakers. Um, we're trying to bring we're trying to bring countries together around the table. So at the moment, Russia is trying to bring Israel and um, Iran together, um, and you know that was one of the main reasons why Putin wanted to talk to America um, and talk to Donald Trump. So so all of this whole soft power, we're a really nice country thing, is is very important to Russian tactics at the moment. So. Um, this 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 is very important to understand because if you're going to look at Russia as as a nation and as a as 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 a, a geopolitical entity, understanding that they want to seat at the table, they want to be taken seriously, um, is absolutely essential to understanding what they're doing underneath the surface as well. The other thing to say is that Russia quite clearly does have a higher risk rating um, and risks have always been high and they are growing. And, and why is that? It's because in foreign policy terms, actually actively there are, um, they're building railways, they're building up troop presence in the Baltic states. Um, they are a fulcrum of risk in the whole Baltic region. Um, their engagement in Syria um, has been going on for a while now, but um, obviously that then embroils Russia within the whole Middle Eastern conflict and um, whether that's sectarian or whether it's um, physical, there are, there are, um, that Russia has become more embroiled across the whole of the Middle East. And then you've also got things like the Novichok incidents, um, which have um, threatened UK security forces, for example, which have presented um, a different image of Russia. And again, implausible deniability. It wasn't USGOV, but, you know, there is building evidence that, that Russia was uh, responsible for that. And so Russia has actually got this set of things that are going on that make it more risky. And even while um, the the success of the World Cup was going on, Russia was actually um, involved in um, more ceasefire violations in the Donbass region in Ukraine. So there were ceasefire violations on both sides. Um, and Russia said it was um, it was uh, it was the Ukrainians um, who were trying to ruin their World Cup. Um, and uh, obviously the Ukrainians said, well, it's it's Russian violations. So again, you can never completely tell, but this is part of an all-means warfare that Russia is using to gain strategic influence. 
Well, yeah, I mean, Ukraine has the, the highest risk rating of, of all at sort of 504. I mean, do you see that dropping much or is it still? It's still a very risky, um, very, very risky region of the world. Um, and, what, and, and the problem with it is the spillover effect. So the spillover effects that it has elsewhere in the Baltic, um, the potential for spillover across the Crimea, um, but also into Georgia. Um, and the fact that um, because of Russian policy in Ukraine, um, countries like Norway and Sweden are also becoming more nervous about how um, about how Russia is behaving. And so they're beginning to become more concerned and to, and, and, and to build up protection along their borders as well. So there's, there's potential of a risk of miscalculation in all this space. You also have to look at Russia-China relations because they're very important as well. So Russia and China have a marriage of convenience, if you like. They don't like each other very much, but... Um, but um, because of One Belt, One Road and because of the increasing relationship that, or, or the increasing power that China has, China is very keen to have strong relationships um, everywhere, um, but has started engaging in military activities with Russia as well. So, um, and then you've got the, the Eurasia group of countries between Russia and China, which then become very conflicted because they're looking to build their relationships with Europe and with North America, but are stuck between Russia and China. So, um, and you, I mean, when you say that, you mean sort of someone like Kazakhstan, which actually it looks like not much of a change, really, sort of a, a 1% change, but and a risk rating of 134.8. So if you look at Kazakhstan, Kazakhstan's very interesting. Um, it's a very young country. It's building up its um, it's building up its culture. So um, it's, it's actually only 30 years old. You know, it's not, not an old country, but it has a very long tradition, a very um, strong culture that was actually wiped out by Russia during the Soviet era. So, you know, there wasn't any kind of cultural basis in Kazakhstan at all um, that it was allowed to express explicitly. So Kazakhstan is quite interesting in terms of um, its desire to create that very strong cultural identity. Um, it had its celebrations, its 20-year celebrations of its new capital um, during July Absolutely fascinating from that point of view because also it has a lot of oil. And so strategically for Russia and for the West and for China, it's it's almost like a fulcrum of the One Belt, One Road and the routes through into Russia and the Middle East because it has very strong traditional links with the Middle East as well. So Kazakhstan has become quite interesting. Is it risky? No, it isn't because it's a because it's a country that's um, you know, actually the 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 risk of conflict is quite low. Um, there might be some um, some um, issues around toleration of dissent in the region, in the country. But basically, Kazakhstan's main problem is that it's stuck between its its traditional um, or its traditional values, its desire to become part of a modern world, and the influence of Russia. So that's its main main issue at the moment. Okay, and within the region. Uh specifically relating to Russia we've been in a uh, an environment where where sanctions has have been in place for for several years now um, are you able to to detect what kind of difference that's made on the trade level for Russia in terms of you know are there any have there been sweeping changes that have come out of that and are they permanent um 
So if you look at Russia's trade patterns, the permanent ones are in terms of more trade with the Middle East and more trade with China. Um, geographically, and in terms of proximity, that's common sense. Actually, <laughs> I mean, if it if it were if it if it were all other things being equal, you'd say, well, Russia would logically trade with the Middle East and logically trade with China because there are obvious routes to doing that. Politically, it happens to make a lot of sense for Russia as well because it it avoids sanctions. Russia, there is evidence that Russia has diverted trade through other other places. So book trade in oil and gas through Switzerland in order to get to Europe, for example. You know, there there is there is evidence that all of that type of thing is happening. Um, but actually Russia's trade outlook in terms of its traditional commodities, particularly as we're seeing higher commodity prices, um, is actually quite positive. Um, and, and it's been one of the mysteries of the whole thing. It hasn't stopped investment in Russia. It hasn't stopped um, from not necessarily from, from countries that have sanctions, but it's not stopped investment from places like China. And so that's an enduring trend now. So you're beginning to see um, software, you're beginning to see hardware, information, communications, technology coming in from China. So it's, it's if you like, it's shifting the trade axis, the, the global trade axis instead of north-south. It's actually one of those fulcrums that's changing into a sort of more east-west um, and that that that's a, a permanent pattern. Yeah, and and you regard that in permanent partly because of infrastructure as well, or it's partly infrastructure. I mean, we've now got pipelines that are being built or have been built going into going into China. You've got pipelines, obviously, going into Europe, um, and and so some of that is some of that is infrastructure, but there's also some very strong politics behind it as well. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned. Um, trade via Switzerland. Can you talk more about detail on that? Well, one of the things that um, we find in, um, is is that when there's, when there's um, a sanction um, regime that's imposed, the countries that are neutral tend to see um, trade being booked through them. So it's money that moves rather than physical goods or services that move. Um, and one of the things that we saw, and it was back when the sanctions first started, that we saw in our data was the fact that um, that suddenly Switzerland had become very divergent in terms of what it said it was trading with the world and what it was trading when we when we used our techniques for uh, refining the data and finding out what was going on and when we it was actually 63% divergent what it said it was doing compared to what it was actually doing was 63% divergent that that now has corrected itself to a mere 18% but but the reason for the diversion or divergence is because Russia actually books a lot of its trade into Europe through Switzerland. So it's Switzerland trading with Europe rather than Russia trading with Europe to avoid sanctions. Okay. Well, let, let's get on to, to Europe as well then. We've kind of mentioned some of what's going on in Scandinavia and Switzerland now. Uh, are there any other countries that we should be watching out for in particular uh, and any big changes to country risk? I think the short answer to that question is yes. Um, Europe's fascinating at the moment and it's not because of Brexit. Um, 
Brexit's important. Brexit's more important to the UK than it is to anyone else in the world. And it's quite interesting when you go and speak, um, when you go and speak on international platforms, how unworried about Brexit everybody is. Um, and I think what that's what Brexit has done is obviously divide the British government. So what's happened there is that our our own the British rankings have gone up. Um, so we, we, we've actually become more risky because of the risk of political instability. But if you look across Europe as a whole, um, the countries that we need to be worried about are countries like um, Poland, um, countries like Hungary, um, where countries like Italy, where you're seeing a rise of populism. And, and to some extent, Germany is still incredibly stable, but Germany has become affected by this rise of populism as well. You've seen a split in um, the CSU and the CDU um, in terms of how they see the migration problem, which actually threatens some of the structures of what I would call a narrower Europe, the European Union um, in particular, because the issue of populism and, and migration is actually more important to the European Union now than it is than, it, than, than Brexit is, I would believe. You know, that's been a real concern because where these huge swathes of migrants go, you've seen Spain start to take on some of those, some of those um, migrants, but you've seen Hungary and Poland actually put in place laws and regulations which are, which are actually quite authoritarian populist measures. Um, and, and those types of things actually threaten the structure of Schengen, they threaten threaten the fabric of the European Union as well. Uh, but, I mean, so in terms of the, the risk, and so I guess you've got sort of two slightly different country situations. So so Poland, I think it's, it's increased by 41%, Italy by 77%, but they're, they're quite different risks. So, so the Italian risk compared to, say, Poland, Hungary. So, so the, the Poland and Hungary risk is a political risk. They're, they're, they're similar in that they have the same basis, which is that they're rooted in populism. They're rooted in the idea that the haves and have-nots, their interests have diverged. Um, there's, and, and they're rooted in a sense that um, migration is an issue. So Italy's populist parties have become explicitly very frustrated with Europe, even though there's no threat of them actually moving out of the European Union. Um, that populist threat has been centred around migration and centred around the idea that Italy needs to become more assertive, both in terms of its fiscal policy and its economic policy, but also in terms of its migration policy. And so in some senses... Although there's no restrictive regime that you could argue is building in Poland and, and Hungary, um, you've actually got a similar base to the problem. And it's this rise of populism and this and how Europe deals with all of that in the context of migration and then economic integration. That's a key challenge that Europe's facing at the moment. And within the context of your, your risk data, I mean, is that... Is the risk of the move to populism that we're seeing, I mean, is that a judgment call on your side or is that something that can be backed up with metrics that actually when you go populist, these are the things that, that may happen? So what, what, what? it's not a question of going populist and, and, and I think what you need to 
need to see is, yes, the metrics are there in terms of voting patterns, in terms of um, opinion polls. So you can see the rise of populism and then equated with that, what you then see is greater political instability. You see greater number of political parties, you see broader differences, the rise of extremism, and those are all things that aren't value judgments. They're things that can be measured, and those are what we're measuring in the data. Okay. And and then sort of you, you'll measure sort of within the news stories that come up, sort of covering certain... Yes. Yes. So, I mean, you can see so you can see some structural things, which are longer term things like voting behaviours and so on. Um, then you see news articles, and you see um, you see social media trends that are picking up on a sort of more micro basis attitudes at a at a local level within individual countries. So you have a stable pattern, which is um, the things that you can see in terms of actual institutions, actual voting patterns, people's behaviours, and then you have a longer, then you have a shorter term thing, which is um, how social media, how press press reports and how the media generally is reacting to these things that are happening. Okay. And if this was a, a, a line graph, um, does it start with, um, does and you mentioned it's a situation sort of that's in part developed due to uh, the discourse of haves and have nots. So is that something that started at the financial crisis or is it something that started with the refugee crisis and the war in Syria and what does that look like as a, as a so movement? So again, I think it depends on country. Um, I think <clears throat> I think you could say with, um, with Hungary and Poland um, and to some extent Italy as well. It started. It's it started with the financial crisis and then the migrant crisis. So Italy financial crisis definitely because it was because it is very involved in or very integrated into the global financial system. People did well. People did badly. You've still got a lot of um, of financial uncertainty and and debt in Italy, which is creating this have have not economic um, conflicts as well between between uh, the ruling classes and the people who did well out of globalisation and the people who didn't. In Hungary and Poland, I think it's a migrant crisis that's really given rise to this. Um, but there's also a sense in the um, new countries um, in Europe that maybe the dream hasn't been quite what it was articulated to be, that, you know, actually Poland and Hungary and Romania and places like that have ended up being um, the the workshop of Europe. They've ended up having, you know, car production lines and, and things like that. And while that's created jobs and it's created a degree of affluence, it also creates frustration. So, there's 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 both going on there, but if you look at a country like Germany, I'd actually say that the populism goes back to um, unification back in you know back in the 1990s, because um, at that time you had. Um, productivity was very different in the East and the West. You had the Eastern lender were being pulled up to the Western standards very quickly and very brutally. Um, and there was a lot of dissatisfaction. 20 years ago, 30 years ago, we were talking about um, the possibility of right or left extremism in the Eastern in the eastern states what that's turned into is populism and again you're seeing this fragmentation of german politics as well as a result it takes time and is that is that 
that discourse, especially to the the media, is it easier to track now? Sort of with 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 the amount of different online information sources that exist, or actually, does that mean it's harder to track because you've got so much more noise? You have an awful lot of noise, which is why you need to look at voting patterns as well as the social media noise, why you need anchors as well as just what's being reported in the press. Because if you look at what's reported in the press, you get you get, you know, you might get um a small piece, for example, you know, the the new stories in the UK about corruption on the weekend that were about police corruption. Um, you know, you get a huge spike in in corruption news and social media feeds and things around around something like that or you might get a spike in terrorism or something you know around a terrorist incident you need to filter out which of those are long-term trends and which of those are short-term spikes and I think um, social media has made it made it on one level easier and on another much more difficult to monitor what's going on and just a reminder you can go to txfnews.com slash country risk for a detailed analysis and data and all the countries mentioned on today's podcast.